so glad the words are put up for those songs because that, well, the whole song spoke to my heart. Uh, I know it did to yours as well, but that one phrase, our lives are completely lived by his grace. And that uh, fits perfectly into our text. So 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to go into our third week, can you believe it, on discussing how grace maintenances Christian relationships in the local church. Remember we talked about how do we live God's loyal love towards us among each other? So grace underpins the sharing of God's loyal love to one another. We strive hard to make sure that we can continue to relate to one another, and it's all by grace, by demonstrating God's loyal love. Then we talked last week about the need for uh, understanding of repentance and how Biblical repentance, even after salvation, repentance from sin, compels us by grace to maintenance relationships. And today we're going to talk about the pursuit of purity, the pursuit of holiness, really. How does the pursuit of holiness, by God's grace, help us to maintenance Christian relationships in the local church? And uh, that's what we're going to study today, and it's just going to be found in, in one verse. Someone wrote me a letter recently and said, you know, Pastor, um, I don't know if I get a lot out of your messages if you just preach on one verse. We need to cover more ground. And I appreciate that. And typically I do preach on more than one verse, but I'm not going to today. So I hope your hearts are still encouraged. There, there's, just, there's just a lot in this verse. And... Um, I think there's some, God's word is powerful. Have you ever been reading your Bible uh, by yourself and, and well, you're planning on getting through maybe three chapters and you get to one line and it just, just totally enraptures your heart and you just kind of meditate on that phrase or that line uh, for the next few minutes and never get to that goal of reading those three chapters? Well, I trust that this verse will have that influence on us for sure as we understand the pursuit of holiness, personal holiness, is necessary for maintenance in Christian relationships. Our former pastor, when talking about maintenancing relationships, would always remind us of these three words, faith, fact, and feeling. Really, when things get emotional and relationships are divided... It's, it's part of our humanity to just get caught up in the emotion of the division. It says, everyone's got to take a deep breath, have a word of prayer, and let's focus on faith, and then let's gather the facts, the whatsoever things are true about the situation, and then let's talk about feelings that God's grace develops when a situation is resolved properly. I like to use these three words, those who have been helpful to us for a long time will continue to be helpful. But I like to emphasize identity, growth, and humanity. Identity, growth, and humanity. What God's people need to do when relationships are divided are immediately, is to immediately view each other in Christ. That though there's been human division, each saint involved has never been divided from Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, right? We know that from Romans chapter 8. 
And then after we've done that, certainly we can look at spiritual growth. Now, I know there may be some that disagree with me on this, and, and that's fine. We can have a cup of coffee over it later, and, and we'll find out that God's right. <laughs> God's word's always right, isn't it? Now, hang on, because this is going to be painful for some. After we're able to clearly identify someone in Jesus Christ because they're born again, trust me, you can always assume there's spiritual growth going on somewhere in their life. Even if the Holy Spirit's convicting them of a wrong of something they've done. Because the Holy Spirit that indwells a believer is never dormant in his ministry, his personal ministry to that believer. Would you agree? It's easy for me to identify someone in Christ and to assume they're growing in some way. If we don't do that, we're never going to be able to discuss the human side of this. Identity in Christ, growth by grace, and then talk about the humanity. Jesus said it's inevitable that offenses are going to come. Even in Christian experience, it's inevitable for every saint around you, including you, to bat a thousand in how they handle relationships with one another. We're all imperfect, but tutored by the grace of God and how to maintenance these relationships. So really, that's what's happening here between the, the Corinthians and the Apostle Paul. Their relationship's been divided. We've been studying that. Paul longs for that relationship to be restored. It's not until Titus brings the message to Paul as to how the Corinthians responded to his severe letter where Paul's heart's comforted, and now he realizes that the Corinthians also desire to have that relationship with him again. And all throughout 2 Corinthians, you can see this principle of identity, growth, and humanity. Identity, growth, and humanity. God's grace, I could use the word, forces us to look to the identity of Christ in each other, assume the growth, so then we can sit down and talk about the human part. It forces us to do that because, remember, the end game is not just the restoration of relationships between one another. The end game is the unity of the Holy Spirit that's been preserved for the cause of the gospel. The gospel goes forth in a much more um, intentional and healthy way from a church to those in our community that need Jesus when the spirit of God's not being grieved by broken relationships inside the church. Does that make sense? Right. And this is what God's grace is compelling Paul and the Corinthians to do. Right. Our gospel is all about the grace of God our relationships. We've discovered together regarding our relationships that are in Christ, when they function practically, it's because they're demonstrating the loyal love and their understanding of repentance. And this morning, it's about pursuing holiness. Remember we said last week about repentance? It's to think about a sin the same way God thinks about that sin. The sorrow of this Greek word metanoia, repentance, it's the sorrow of not just turning around. It's the, it's, the, it's the reality of actually thinking 
about our sin the way that God does. Someone said it's the sorrow of real change, no defensiveness, no victimization mentality, no self-justification, no self-defense, and no resentment. Remember this repentance last week in verse 10? It leads to salvation. Not just born-again salvation. We understand repentance is necessary for that. This is, this is a post-salvation repentance. This is a salvation that's released. It's to be released from, to be saved from the turmoil of that conflict. Right? To be released from the sin that caused the turmoil between, relation, between people and relationships. Saved from it. This is what God's grace does, and we'll have it detailed here in verse 11. If we don't do that, the sorrow of the world works death. Now, I don't want to be, I don't, I don't believe I'm being dishonest with Scripture. You know, if there's a joy of repentance because we've been released from the, the sin that caused the conflict and the divide, and God's grace has saved us from that practical reality, then I'm assuming that that it's a serious situation when the believer could also face death prematurely because they refuse to allow God's grace to operate back to restoration. It says here, the sorrow of the world works death. Yes, we know that mere remorse and mere regret over sin instead of understanding the repentance that God's grace can give before you're saved can also produce eternal death. I'm not so sure that's exactly what Paul's talking about here in the context because he's talking to believers, okay? Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we knew that the apostle Paul had had a conflict with these believers or how they were handling the Lord's Supper and how they were treating one another inside the local church. There was division. There was a winking at sin inside that local church. And they continued to participate in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy fashion. And Paul said, this is why some of you sleep. This is why some left with unrepentant sin in relationship to their relationship with God and one another in reverent worship. They refused to deal with it. And the text says, like, from what I understand, the Lord's long patient with this, but there are some that at times are taken home to an early death. And I've often wondered if that's not the sin unto death that John talks about in 1 John chapter 5. God is patient, isn't he? But we know from Hebrews 12, whom the Lord loves, he what? He chastens. Okay. He's long-suffering, but he chastens. So, They've experienced this repentance. It's brought great joy and rejoicing to Paul's heart, the Corinthian heart. It's led to salvation, which we know it's true repentance because it's led to salvation from the relief of this conflict and then the restoration of the believer. Okay. So that's repentance. Now let's talk about the pursuit of holiness. So this morning, our proposition is quite simple. Grace produces a passionate pursuit of personal holiness in order to maintain relationships in the church. I want you to look at verse 11 with me. For behold, what earnestness this thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What, 
vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong, and everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. Now, you see that last phrase? In everything you did what? You proved yourselves right, to be innocent in the matter. You demonstrated yourselves to be innocent. That word innocent, uh, the root word there is where we get our English word holy. That's where we get this pursuit of holiness in the text. It's from the last line. When true repentance takes place, all these seven explanations or words are used to, to demonstrate that there was some clarity of thought here uh, and clarity of life intention that repentance by God's grace has brought okay. that, has, that has given birth to progressive sanctification, growth in Christ-likeness. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, 32, be kind to one another, right? Tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So there, there's, there's certainly a reality here that, that the Corinthians and the Apostle Paul are growing what it means to be kind and tenderhearted and forgiving each other the same way God had forgiven them. Right? And it's caused spiritual growth, holiness. They've proved themselves to be holy. And what's amazing to me about this verb demonstrated, uh, it's in the middle voice in the Greek language, I believe it's an aorist middle, which just basically means there was a point in time where the grace of God operated in your life to absolutely convict you and then convince you that you needed to make a choice to pursue restoration with the believer and not wait for that other believer to pursue restoration with you. There's a personal choice here that's being made. And God's grace does that. God's grace for the believer, through the ministry of the indwelling Spirit of God, always compels his children to move first. Remember we said last week to love first. When there's a stalemate, someone's got to love first. And it's right here. You demonstrated personally to make a move of restoration. And of course, Titus delivered that message. I think it's powerful here to notice that first as we continue on. To be holy is to be set apart. They desire to be personally distanced from the sin that separated them from Paul. So knowing this truth, let's be reminded of some things we discussed last week real quick. Remember, we talked about that when there's a stalemate in a Christian relationship, as we just mentioned, someone's got to step out and do the right thing. And throughout these several verses that we've been studying, you can see how God's grace operates personally before it does so in mending the relationship. And Paul emphasizes this again more so in verse number 11. You see, when God's grace is working in our hearts, we don't ever have a moment to merely see the ills in someone else's life because we're so wrapped up in knowing the ills of our own heart. Even when you may be the innocent party in the conflict, there must be the introspection necessary in order to bring about a godly humility in approach to the conversation of restoration. In other words, I may be innocent, 
But without recalling how many times I haven't been, I'll never remember what the psalmist says, for without forgiveness, who could stand up? So even the ability to forgive is based on your personal understanding of being forgiven. And this passionate desire to be forgiven is found right here in the first several words of verse 11. He says here, for behold, what earnestness. For behold. Now, there's a lot of energy in those two words in the original language. Paul wants us to stop, I think, <laughs> and just take a look at this verse. I'm not making light of what I said earlier about only preaching on one verse. The two words, for behold, actually demands that we stop and understand the energy towards restoration that the grace of God develops in a believer's heart when there's relationship division. There is no rest at all for the believing heart when they know there's spiritual division among another saint in their home or in their local church. There's no rest. There's no rest until it's mended. We would all agree that there's no rest or slumber, slumbering or sleeping for the Holy Spirit, right? He's God. God never slumbers nor sleeps. So when we've grieved the Spirit of God, wouldn't you say there's somewhat of a 24-7, 365 reality of the Holy Spirit's undying commitment to convict you until you're right with God and then right with man? The Holy Spirit that indwells you will be relentlessly pursuing your heart to right that relationship. That's just what God's grace does and how God's grace operates through the Spirit of God to pursue that. For behold, Paul is relating here that this is a big deal. When two believers desire to sit down and make things right because there's something much bigger going on than just their relationship. Certainly the unity is the goal. Certainly our desire to maintain fellowship is beautiful. Both parties governed by the Spirit of God long to see the grace of God operate by uniting in fellowship again. again. But remember, the greater context before this immediate context is a gospel context. We need to do this for, for a cause much bigger than any one of us. For behold, also remind us that Titus had reported to Paul that each of the Corinthians had an excited desire to take personal inventory of their own lives and their own part in the wrongs that caused their relationship with Paul to be severed and to deal with them. They were excited beyond measure to be restored to fellowship spending so much time just on these two words for this reason, okay? If, if we know there's something not right between us and another believer and we're not excited beyond measure to make sure it's mended and fixed, then there's, there's a virtue of God that's not operating in our lives. And it's his grace. Okay? Now, we can sit and have 10 cups of coffee in a row and discuss with all sincerity that if the grace of God in your life is not making you that uncomfortable 
when you're not right with another believer, you have to wonder if the Spirit of God has not indwelt your body as his temple. That's really what's going on here. The Corinthians were in pain to be separated, and Paul was in great pain. Remember the language of 2 Corinthians chapter 2? He was in agony of soul to the point he could barely participate in the gospel door that had been opened unto him at Troas. Paul was in such guttural, visceral agony. He could not live another day knowing that another believer, let alone group of believers, was divided. And the Spirit of God had worked in the Corinthians' hearts to now respond the same way. So if you're not bothered continuously by the Spirit of God, I wonder how the grace of God even operated in your heart in the first place. Okay? Now, say you're a believer, you are indwelt by the Spirit, then, then the converse is also true. Then you're not really comfortable at all. Like, ever. <laughs> and God does not want you to exist in that reality either. <laughs> right? So, good for us to understand this, um, for sure. They were excited beyond measure to be restored to fellowship. They anticipated this. I'm sure that they would have loved an, an email to be quickly sent back then. Um, a sincere note of regret and reconciliation would have been great. They, were, they would have loved to get that out sooner than later, but they had to wait because that was true snail mail back then, right? But we can never underestimate the value of human communication when it comes to the corrective action necessary to restore human relationships. There's Titus with them, Titus with Paul, Paul with them. All human interaction. I think the story practically plays out with just humans with humans. To teach us a great lesson that this face-to-face -face communication is necessary in the restoration of Christian relationships, uh, to be sure. Right? Isn't it wonderful to be the mailman of exciting news of reconciliation? I, uh, I've received letters from middlemen before of relationships that I was separated from, a middleman working hard because they knew that either I or another individual um, had been separated from each other in Christian ministry. And that was uncomfortable for the middle guy. But the middle guy knew both hearts of both sides and God used that middle guy to bring two back together again. I don't ever want to underestimate not just the face-to-face -face communication, but how God can use a middleman in the restoration of a relationship too. God used Titus. Maybe God the Spirit's influencing someone's hearts here, and you know that a couple believers are at odds, and you want to be the paraclete, you want to be the intermediate, you want to be the go-between just to be used of the Lord to see a relationship reconciled. And we thank God for you too. And you are necessary as well. 
Titus clarified to Paul that the Corinthians were not only excited, they were secondly earnest. See that word here? For behold, what earnestness. This is just simply a serious purpose or to be eager, to be seriously seeking righteousness and holiness in the matter of reconciliation. Grace compels us to leave behind the days of spiritual complacency on the matter of the ills that divide us. And grace compels us to fight for the reconciliation, to pursue it with a strong desire. There will be some passion involved to make things right. I think the whole verse is really about serious purpose. Go back on your own time and you'll see that the word what is mentioned seven times. Grammatically, that's that's given to us to not just bullet these virtues, these fruits of repentance on our pursuit of holiness, but they also demonstrate for us clarity of passion and determination. The seven what's are tied really to this this earnestness, this all-consuming desire to be right with another one of God's children. I believe the word earnestness is also mentioned first in this list because it's really the primary disposition and action of pursuing true holiness when we truly understand repentance. There's, very, uh, there's a very strong step out by those governed by grace to make the initial and intentional move towards reconciliation. And this serious intent really governs the whole reconciliation process. You know, I suppose the Corinthian believer could assume Paul would forgive them. But they couldn't be assured he would respond with grace and forgiveness because he's just a human. They had hurt him so badly. Again, we remember Paul's words of anguish in the earlier parts of this letter. But to highlight again the language of the phrase has produced squarely places the responsibility of individual, individuals involved to relentlessly pursue reconciliation regardless of how they believe another believer even the victim in a situation would respond. They knew Paul was hurt when they repented and they were sending the letter of restoration back or the notice of restoration back with Titus. They still didn't know how Paul was going to respond. But they did it anyway. So many times we hear Christians when relationships are divided in a home or in a local church well, I just, I really don't know what's going to be worth. They're, they're just not going to change. We've had this conversation before. It always bothers me when I hear this. Well, they're not going to change. It kind of lets me know you haven't done much self-inventory. And remember last week, restoration never happens unless you really believe you're the worst sinner in the room anyway. Right? They're not going to change. You're assuming their motive at that point. And true repentance never assumes motive. It just obeys. It just does what it has to do to seek to be restored. 
Certainly you might get that response from the one that's been hurt. But then that's on their shoulders. You'll stand before the Lord someday for your pursuit of reconciliation, whether their hearts allow it or not. And this is what the Corinthians are doing. It's what they've personally decided. The Corinthians wanted here in the next phrase to vindicate themselves. What vindication of yourselves? You know what vindication means. Pretty simple. They wanted their names cleared. They wanted to be completely cleared in the matter. The Corinthians wanted an opportunity to prove that they'd changed. That's what grace does. It longs to demonstrate you've been washed from the sin of the wrong you've done. And it longs to prove you've distanced yourself from that sin. Like, I don't want to have any part of it, which leads to the next word, indignation. And it means exactly what it says. I suppose you've heard um, the phrase holy anger or righteous anger. This could be one of those texts that it's taken from. It's okay to hate sin. Would you agree? God hates sin. We can hate sin. And there's there's a special hatred, I guess you could say. When you've truly been repentant of something you've been involved with that causes division... And you've been involved, obviously, personally, there's a special indignation that we have for that sin that hurt my relationship with another believer. And God's grace develops that hatred for that sin. Like, I'm never going to do that again by God's grace. Nothing about this was right from the beginning. It's been all wrong. I'm glad it's over. I've been saved from it. I'm not going there again. I can remember when I was in high school, I had my, started my own painting business and continued it through college and through seminary and even through first 15, 18 years I was here as a pastor, as bivocational. I, I, um, there's certain things you make and make, make mistakes you make in the painting business that you only make one time and, and you never have to go back there again. I can remember I was painting the old Osborne estate up on Esther Street here in Mentor. And I had developed a relationship with Jerry Osborne, now who's passed, but, and his whole family. And um, um, that big house on Esther Street has, has a slate roof. It's a very large, I think it's a 27-room home. And I think it had like 14 or 15 bathrooms. And so this is high up, right? And uh, you can't take wood that you normally would and pound it into the roof so you can have some, right? Uh, So you had to get up there and you had to inch your way up because the possibility of sliding off was very real. And I didn't have the money as a college kid to go out and buy all the fancy harnesses and all that kind of stuff. So I was dumb. And I went ahead and took the contract and I did the job. I got up on that roof and I, I leaned over with my scraper to get the underhang and I grabbed before I scraped and I grabbed a hold of uh, a nest of, of wasps, right? And, and, and uh, there's a lot of things going on in that moment, right? right? So there's that, 
wow, it wasn't one sting. I grabbed the whole nest. Like I have a big hand. I grabbed the whole nest. And so then you're triaging like right now, like all these things aren't going to kill me, but falling off this roof probably will, right? And um, thank goodness, uh, along with this large house from this very wealthy man who was very kind to me, uh, came, came uh, eight, nine inch wide old fashioned copper gutters. And I started to slide off that roof and the only hope that I was going to make it home that night was my foot catching that old copper gutter. And it did. And it held. And I'm here. <laughs> I'll guarantee you, for the rest of my years painting, I never reached under an overhang before I looked. It was too painful. It was too painful. Silly illustration to tell you how God's grace is operating for the Corinthian believers here. What indignation. I hated that experience. Didn't want to go through that near-death experience again. So I'm going to avoid it at all costs. God's grace is our tutor to hate sin that we've fallen to so that we don't repeat it again, if at all possible to remember the pain that it caused. I'm just not going there again. It's not worth it. My life's too miserable. The division of this relationship is just unbearable. And he goes on to add to indignation, what fear? What fear? I really believe this to be a holy fear of God, which lends itself to the fear of falling back into the same Sin again. God's grace is our tutor to develop a healthy reverence of our Creator who indwells us in the person of His Spirit. This is a good fear. To fear God to the point where He gives you a fear of sin is good. It's good. And when repentance truly takes place and holiness is pursued, there's a heightened level of not wanting to grieve the Spirit of God in this matter of your life again. And then he says here, what longing. What longing. Remember back in verse 7? Go back there with me real quick. Get a little context here in verse 5 of chapter 7. For even when we came to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comfort us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me. I think this word is used again in the same chapter to demonstrate the same truth, to teach the same truth. Repentance always includes salvation from the isolation that division causes. And God's grace compels us to pursue the relationship again. And we're unsettled in our hearts until it's done. 
so hard but so wonderful, right? The glorious agony of progressive sanctification, right? And you know what? There really is, when, when God's grace is operating in your heart and, and you go and you try to restore your relationship with someone in your home or in the church, God forbid that that division lasts long anywhere. I don't, I don't know of any here at Grace, but it may be there. We're preaching through it and you can deal with it. But whenever I've gone back to try to reconcile a relationship and the party that you talk to makes it irreconcilable, if you're going to continue to be governed by the Holy Spirit, that special pain really never goes away. Does it? It just doesn't. Right? Whether it be Christians around town that used to go to Grace Church, friends that I have around town that are Christian that used to call me my, their friend, all these different things that can happen to me, and, and they've happened to you too. You just can't comprehend how in the world two Christians can't love each other and fellowship and get along. It's just incomprehensible how that can happen. And then you come to a text like this, it's like, wow, it can happen, so why is it not happening? I'm just telling you my own personal struggle. <laughs> why is it not happening? Friends for 40 years. What? Seriously, is grace really operating here? Yes, I'm not perfect. I'll admit that. But Christ is. And I identify you and him. And I assume you're growing. Now let's talk about the humanity. What longing. You long for that relationship to be right with another saint. No rest in the soul until... We find that. The Corinthians would stop at nothing to ensure that the relationship had been made right with Paul. I'm sure they waited with the same agony to know Paul's response. I'm sure that they did. As Paul had waited to hear from Titus of theirs. There's always a relentlessness in the spirit-filled heart when they know things just aren't the way they should be with another believer who is in Christ. And he says here, zeal. What zeal? This word zeal um, is a fascinating word because it's kind of like uh, the twofold emotion in one word. It means loving something. One grammarian says, loving something so much you hate the thing that it hurts. Loving something so much that you hate the thing that hurts it. We can have zeal for God this way, can't we? You love God so much, we just hate when people speak ill of him or use his name in vain, right? We think of all the names, Philip, Stephen, all the names that people could use in a cuss phrase, and they gotta use my creator and my savior's name. Why is that? Well, because cursing is nothing more than shaking your fist in the hand of ultimate authority, in the face of ultimate authority. People know who their ultimate authority is, else they'd use their own name in vain. Right? We can have zeal for our church this way. We love our church family, and we should. I love our church family. I have the greatest church family in all the earth. Here you go, Pastor Tim. He's making your commercial at Grace Church. Look, I like my church, like a lot. I love my church. 
I talk about my church in the city gates. I tell people how much I love you. I'm proud of that. And when someone speaks ill of you, I've got some zeal in my heart. No, it's not true. You don't know my people. You must be talking about that church. <laughs> right? Can't be us. Someone gave you the wrong name. Who's the pastor there anyway? I'd like to know that guy. I'd like to give him a piece of my heart. Get things right there. I do that. I have those conversations with a good spirit because I really love my church. Right? It's loving something so much that you hate what hurts it. Anyone speaks ill of my wife, my children, same response as you. Really? Really? Let's talk. The Corinthians had come to have zeal for Paul. They now hated what caused that relationship division. What avenging of wrong? What avenging of wrong? This is just simply wanting justice to be done. That's it. You're made in the image of God. Part of that being made, image, being made in the image of God is that you have a moral aspect to your nature. God's moral, perfectly moral. Right? That moral aspect is just our ability to discern between right and wrong. And Paul says here, the grace of God tutors our hearts by the indwelling spirit of God to want justice to be done in the situation. Yes, relationship restoration is paramount, but the sin that caused it is to be expunged. It is to be dealt with. Apparently the religious one leading this division in Corinth had been dealt with or was being dealt with. When the under, unrepentant cancer lives and is spreading, it's got to be extracted. That's Second Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 5, right? With the incestuous son. Right? A little leaven does what? It leavens the whole lump. Right? So forgiveness and restoration is a big deal. Read Matthew 6. Right? It's a big deal. So, Paul says here again, as we conclude this verse, and by the way, I don't think you should get caught up. I think some of you might be big on numerology in the Bible. Don't get hung up that there's seven what's and seven virtues of repentance here and being the number of perfection. Don't go there. I've heard, I've heard that said. I've read that said. Said that read, whatever. Just, just be careful. Yeah, there are seven what's. There are seven things. I wouldn't, I wouldn't apply that to this context, but I would apply by way of conclusion the reminder of the way the verse ends. In everything you demonstrated yourselves, you made a personal decision prompted by an indwelling spirit and by the grace of God to be innocent in the matter. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. I don't think I've had a raised hand invitation here in a decade. I don't know. And I don't think I'm going to have one this morning. But I am going to give you a moment if our pianist can come to the piano.
And I just want her to softly play. A verse of a hymn so that you can make sure that in your own heart you've done uh, exactly what the Spirit of God is prompting your heart to do right now. You know something may not be right with another believer in your home or in this church and you've just decided to lay it aside, maybe sweep it under the carpet, but that tension's still there. Right? Just allow the Holy Spirit of God by His grace to prompt you to be innocent in the matter. Remember, it's the pursuit of your holiness. Be holy of I am holy, God says. It's the pursuit of God's holiness prompted by the Spirit of God. This is good for you. Reconciliation and dealing with the matter is good for you long before it's good for the other party. Two parties that understand that will be restored. And they'll do it with this disposition and this action of 2 Corinthians 7, 11. So just determine in your heart this week, you're going to have a conversation. Maybe you'll text someone before the baptisms are even over and say, hey, I want to talk to you because I love you. Act upon it. That's what grace does. It acts upon it, okay? Just do it sooner than later. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the work of the Spirit of God in our lives. We thank you, Lord, for the leaving us this historic example preserved in your word for our learning. Help us, Lord, to personally do that and then corporately enjoy the benefit of that learning by your grace. Help us always to remember that grace always compels us to maintenance, unity, that the Spirit of God's produced. It's all of grace, unity produced by the spirits of grace and our pursuit of the maintenancing of that unity is not of our own effort. It's of supernatural compulsion to do that. And so we know that you will be glorified as we pursue that which you've asked us to pursue. In Christ's name, amen. We're going to sing as we prepare for the baptisms. Colleen, you're welcome to enter to the left as soon as I do, and Sasha, I'll call you up um, when I get in the tank, okay? All right, let's move forward. Let's sing together. Let's stand one more time, and we'll sing A Passion for Thee.
morning again. I know your hearts are prepared to listen. So Colleen, come on up. And Sasha, you can come on in. We're far out there, Sasha. There you go. Come on in. You can watch from up the steps here. And uh, if Sasha is ready before Colleen, we'll take Sasha. I see Colleen. Ready to go, Not. Just a sec. All right. Sasha is, has become relatively well-known to our flock through ministering to us and music. Colleen's going to come and give her testimony, and she has been well-known here for a long time because uh, Ben Richard has mentioned her name for prayer for years here. And I remember praying for Colleen. How many years back would you have started to mention her name? Clear back when she was a student. Yeah, so we prayed for her often. So you probably know her by name more than you do by face, but this morning we'll fix that. So come on in, Colleen. Uh, no pressure. Yeah. Colleen's, where's, where's her family and friends here this morning? Good to see you again. Best friend here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she told me she was. Yes. Okay, good. Oh, right. <laughs> yes. Good. All right, good family. All right, go ahead. Okay. Okay. Um, I have been conflicted about getting baptized at this point in my life because I was baptized. I was baptized as an infant. Um, I never questioned infant baptism until it became clear to me in the Bible and through discipleship that baptism always followed belief, um, that it was an outward expression of an inward reality. And God has taught me that he doesn't call us to comfort, but to obedience. Um, in 2 Timothy, Paul says, for the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. So I cannot deny that the way I am now is different than the way I was before I truly repented and prayed to follow Jesus. And I rejoice in this opportunity to share how God has shown me uh, his greatness. Uh, I always called myself a Christian, but I didn't always understand the weight of that statement. Uh, I didn't think that I needed to be saved. I went to church and I got good grades and I was a nice person. And that's where I was place, placing my identity, was being a, a good girl. Um, I would pray, and I believed in Jesus' resurrection, but the way that I was living did not demonstrate that being a Christian was my whole life, just a part of my life. So I went away to college, and I was faced with the opportunity to make my own choices for the first time. And I would occasionally attend a campus ministry event, read a devotional, or pray because I thought that I should. Uh, my freshman year, I really stopped attending church regularly because I thought that believing in God on my own was enough. I thought I was too busy, and I didn't think I was getting much out of the sermons. I didn't know anybody at church. Um, then my sophomore year, I did go back to a church, but because I was hired as a, a soprano section leader of a choir. So I would go, but I would zone out during the sermons, and I uh, was getting a paycheck to be there. Um, and because of that, my life really continually began to reflect the fact that I was just not growing um, in my faith. 
I was doing really well on the outside, but I wasn't feeling satisfied. I found myself feeling secretly anxious, uh, feeling lonely and unsettled, and I couldn't put my finger on why I would feel that way, because from the outside I had no reason to feel anything but happy. Um, it was then that uh, my friend who was my choir mentor and eventually my discipler invited me to her Bible study that she created just for women in the conservatory uh, of music at my school. And that's when things really began to change. Um, Psalm 119.105 says, Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. So without the word of God in my life, I didn't have a light on my path. I didn't know I was off course until I opened the Bible. I was being rerouted by the Holy Spirit because for the first time I was reading the map. Um, I began to feel conviction that things in my life needed to change from relationships to priorities, habits. Uh, the more I began to dive into the truths of the gospel, the more my life really started to shift and God wasn't letting me stay the same. I went to a conference in December of 2017 with Crew Campus Ministries uh, where we were challenged with this idea of fully submitting to God. And this made me really excited about all of the new joys and truths of the gospel, but scared and sad because I knew that this was going to change everything and that I couldn't change on my own. Something that I wrote in the journal that I kept at that conference was, he doesn't need my success, he needs my surrender. And I wasn't washed over with this sense of peace and rebirth in that moment, but I prayed. I repented and I asked my savior to forgive my sins and to help me. Um, it wasn't clean, it wasn't this instant change, but I started slowly but surely uh, reading the Bible, and I started at the book of John, and then I just kept going, and I finally learned my purpose, that I'm a daughter of God, called to go forth and make disciples of all nations. Uh, yeah. Ben Richard was my choir director in high school. Um, he and I kept in touch since I graduated because I was majoring in music education, but now I know that in keeping in touch, he uh, cared infinitely more about the salvation of my soul uh, than my career choice. So when I told him about being saved, he continued to check on me, sent me a foundations book in the mail, challenged me to be bold in sharing my faith. Um, and it was really awesome because for the first time, God really showed me that everything I loved about choir, everything I admired about this teacher, everything that made me also want to become a music teacher was really because of Christ. Um, and by the goodness of God, these conversations we were having made it all so real um, that this is bigger than some experience I had at a conference. This is the Great Commission in action. Uh, and I'm a music teacher now, too, and I also share with my students, just like Ben shared with me, that, yes, I care about you as people and as musicians, but I hope you know how much I care about your soul. Um, I'm sharing all of this to say that God is good and sovereign, and I'm so thankful that he rescued me. And when I started reading the Bible three years ago, I entered into the sweetest, most consistent relationship I've ever had in my life, and that's fellowship with Jesus. Um, I, I know who I am now because I know who I belong to. And I have repented, asked forgiveness of my sins, and I believe in the promises of God. I profess faith in Jesus Christ as my Savior and strive to mature every day, desiring to be more and more like Jesus until I really see him face to face. And life is so much more vibrant with that new purpose. This wasn't a simple one-time decision, but a life transformation that's still happening uh, day by day. But still, I have assurance in my salvation and position as a daughter of God. He anchors me, yet sends me, adores me, and disciplines me. And I'm loved by a perfect father, friend, 
king, counselor, savior, master, creator, um, and through faith I, a sinner, was saved by grace. Colleen, upon your profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and desire to obey him in baptism, I'm proud to baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Mom and Dad, you did raise a very good girl. You really did. Come on up, Sasha. And thank you for encouraging her to be part of our family. We love her a lot here. And I, I could never compare to your love for her as a family, but she's been a great blessing to us. Thanks. You're most welcome. Thank you. All right. Over here. Microphone's over here. Where? Right there. Don't touch it. Gotcha. Yeah, you're in water. Don't touch it. Yeah. I just want to make sure I can see my folks here. So I want to let you know that uh, this is a beautiful testimony. Um, I know how long it was on 8.5 by 11. He's reading it on a 5-inch cell phone screen. So God bless you <laughs> and all that. Share your heart, my friend. Sure. They're anxious to hear it. Um, I wanted to preface all this by saying uh, thank you for your patience and for being here to listen to my testimony because it is certainly a needy one and lengthy. Um, as I've collected many of the stories and important moments of my life, mainly two months leading up to my salvation. It is certainly a gift and a blessing from God to not only present my testimony to this church family, but for this church family to be such an important part of my testimony. I'm here to profess my obedience to Christ for you all, my brothers and sisters in Christ. Since I have a relatively unique path to knowing Christ and having not been brought up and raised as a Christian, I suppose I can give some more context about myself and start from the beginning. I was born and raised in New Providence, New Jersey, a lovely suburban town outside of New York City. The rest of my family, however, immigrated from Russia or the Soviet Union in 1992, which is where my mother, father, and sister were born. So even though I was the spoiled one of the family, having grown up in an affluent area with many and plenty of resources at my disposal, I grew up with a pretty constant feeling of gratitude especially after my parents got divorced when I was 12 years old. I lived on with a decision to find happiness and be as grateful as I could, despite any pain that was there in my life and despite maybe not knowing exactly what happiness and gratitude could look like. As I continued to live out my life through grade school, I was consistently blessed with so many great opportunities and was excited by so much around me. I got to travel, play sports, have many friends, and of course, perform and immerse myself in music day in and day out. However, through all my faults that come with the nature of being a human being, it was so easy for me to take most of that for granted. I often overlooked the reality of how blessed I was and had developed other struggles, whether they were issues with dishonesty and resulted in hurting others or even an inability to perceive time that somehow made me always be late to practically anything. <laughs> Through all that, I still had many people around me who were generous with their time and appreciated whatever it was I had to offer the world. I was able to enjoy my life in so many contexts with so many people, and eventually 
The purpose of these blessings was something that I started thinking about more and more the older I got. When in high school, especially towards the end, I found myself thinking and looking forward in life, continuing my thoughts on purpose and what my purpose in this world is. I was seeking something bigger without consciously knowing what it was that I was seeking. Or perhaps I should say my heart started to be guided without knowing it. Oftentimes when I needed to think and reflect on these things, I had my favorite spot to do so. Down the street from the house I grew up in, there was a modest but lovely little playground perched on a hill. This hill was one of the highest points in town nestled in such a peaceful area and overlooked rolling hills of my town and I would climb up on the monkey bars and sit at the top of the playground often in the evening when the sun was setting and look out onto a very tall elegant tree right in the middle of the scene almost painting itself as a primary subject of the view. However the reason I'm expressing the significance of this wonderful location is not simply because of how nice the view was but because of how I felt every time I sat there and how I felt when leaving. Since it was a place for great reflection, I felt as though I had to express my feelings of gratefulness to someone or to something. 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 16 through 18 say, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And when I felt convicted about mistakes or evil doings of my sinful heart, I felt as though I had to apologize or ask someone of something, kind of like repentance, right? The book of Acts, along with many other passages, speak of the significance of repentance. And Matthew 3.8 instructs us to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. While sitting on those monkey bars, looking off into the sun, my thoughts on these things put me in a great mindset, but never led me to a concluding answer. I looked up and felt as though something was trying to reach me and that these thoughts were guided by something way bigger than me in the world around me. It was almost as if there was something that explained the purpose of the life I loved and could allow me to seek unity and understanding with my gratitude, convictions and mistakes, and give me a standard at which I should be living my life. A standard that is the bridge to myself and the big picture that I was trying so hard to find when sitting on those monkey bars looking off at the large wise tree. That standard and bridge, of course, is Jesus Christ, our Lord who walked on this earth and died on a cross for my sake as well as everyone's. At that point in time, however, I had no idea who Christ was, let alone understand that there is a miraculous book from God that explains who he is and explains the purpose and all that I felt on that playground, even though God was evidently working in my heart. Eventually, I found myself committing and attending the Cleveland Institute of Music. I was very excited and thought that the biggest reason I was going was because of the violin professor I had been assigned to. It all happened so fast and looking back, my decision to come here was made so quickly, and little did I know, once again, that my heart had been guided. Off the bat, I made some of the best friends I could possibly imagine, some people being friends for life and some for beyond something I could comprehend at that point. However, most of the time, I was having fun and worrying little about what the future held. A problem with myself by that point was that I was not truly asking myself the tough questions I needed to in order to grow, and therefore being dishonest with myself. As much as I wanted to convince myself that I was truly enjoying life and all that it offered, I felt a little lost. Through that, I struggled with not only the sin that stains my heart, but how to deal with it. All while that was happening, however, I started to strike up some conversation with some important people in my life. 
These conversations were quite philosophical, and I was certainly as stubborn as ever when approaching them. I liked to think that a purely methodical, factually-based method to understanding anything was how to approach a philosophical debate. I was partially right, however. While there were obviously many facts that I still did not know, I wasn't of the mindset that you need to have faith in order to know anything, and that it's natural and necessary for us to believe in something. In case you couldn't tell by now, a lot of these conversations were about the existence of God, and how that plays into the concept of love and an understanding of creation. I was at a point where I refused to understand the concept of belief and faith and broke concepts down by their material value, not their deeper or eternal one. I was so convinced that I was right when debating these things, and my pride was so overblown through the roof it was crazy. One day towards the end of my first semester of sophomore year, I went on a contemplative walk looking for a spot that made me think and reflect quite like the playground did back home. On a bench overlooking downtown Cleveland behind the art museum, I wondered where my thoughts could go if I just looked up, put down my pride, and allowed myself to be vulnerable, put my faith in something greater, like our God, who I still did not know at the time. I wondered if I could find comfort in that, and see if there was a, maybe a purpose behind everything. My childhood blessings and mishaps, my coming to Cleveland, and all the thought-provoking conversations I was having. I found myself at this point in time starting to ask myself tougher questions. Therefore, this led me to expound upon my curiosities of the world and how others viewed it. I had been wondering and wanted to ask about the significance of church for many people around me and why they liked to depend on some book that they all called the Word of God. One evening, after several of my friends had come back from this mysterious gathering called Friday Christian Fellowship, <laughs> they were talking about something they read through in this book, being the Bible, I felt compelled to take a step forward and ask what it was they were talking about and why it was so important to them. <clears throat> What's the purpose of the book? How do you know it's the word of God? Why is Christ so heavily emphasized in this book and how does it explain Christ's role in this world? Once I began asking these questions, however, I noticed and felt that my friends were so engaged and felt so compelled to answer them. Following that night, I was continually fascinated by their attitude and desires to discuss my questions just as much as the answers themselves. As that semester was closing down, I found myself leaving Cleveland with a Bible in my suitcase and a mind full of questions. I started the next semester eager to figure out so much of what I was wrestling with in my mind. I still didn't quite understand how to approach the Bible, but I was certainly fascinated by it. Something I was particularly excited about at school was a philosophy class that I was going to take at Case Western Reserve University. It's important to note that this class could have gone in many different routes, considering how a slight implicit bias in any philosophical discussion could totally change the trajectory of someone's thoughts and questions towards truth. I was asked and forced to think about huge thinking points and questions the likes of morality, justice, and love. The class had us think about the role and significance of those concepts amongst humanity. However, I wanted to dive deeper and understand where they come from in the first place. I even wondered if there was a way to follow and realize an example of someone who fully understood these things, because it was clear to me that no human being around me could possibly do so. What I eventually learned was that to fully understand them and these concepts, you have to fully enact upon them. 
In one of my journal entries for the class on the topic of justice, I wrote, and I quote, To be a purely just person is impossible in our nature. To be purely just, you must be able to have anything stripped from you and still have infinite gratitude for whatever it is you do have. To its full extent, you cannot fully and purely define what it means to be a just person. And that right there is where the missing puzzle piece was, being Christ himself, who defines and establishes the pure justice that I was trying to figure out. My heart was searching and was being guided to find that missing piece and to understand who he was, and I still didn't even know it at the time. After several more nights of asking my Christian friends questions at about 2.30 in the morning, they eagerly encouraged me to attend Friday Christian Fellowship, and on a Friday night in late January, I decided to go. When walking into the house that hosted this evening for believers, I was so curious as to what I was getting myself into, as well as nervous and intimidated. But once I was there, all nerves seemed to die down as I was greeted by the two incredibly sweet and hospitable hosts who let me drink as much tea and eat as many animal crackers as my heart desired. <laughs> After getting to know quite a few people, whether they were musicians I had already knew of and respected, or people I have never seen or met before, I felt this incredible warmth and openness that seemed to be mutually understood by everyone else in the room. A lot of intentional and interesting conversation led us to the part of fellowship, which is what blew me away. Everyone gathered and sat in a circle in the cozy living room to hear out each other's prayer requests and praises. I got a chance to hear others express what they were struggling with or what they were praising and celebrating and rejoice in those things together. Then, almost everyone prayed for one another. They prayed for each other. And while this doesn't sound like anything crazy for myself now or any other Christian, I was truly mind-blown then. How wonderful it was to see such devotion and commitment from everyone, for not even each other's sake, but for Christ's as the prayers had suggested. I needed to know what that meant, and I wanted to know so badly. The surge of questions I had from class, late night discussions with friends, and from the wonderful insight on this group of Christians in fellowship had me craving answer after answer. Before I even realized it, I was sitting down with my fourth cup of tea, asking questions about Christ and the Bible, with about 20 people around me listening and offering whatever they could. The scene was quite enthralling, as many people probably can remember, and even though I didn't intend to be the center of attention, all eyes and ears were right on me. The energy was incredible, honestly. Everyone wanted nothing more than for me to be encouraged by and develop a stronger desire to understand the gospel and our loving Savior. This was a night where I had an easier time hearing the reality of who Jesus really is. My reception to the gospel was changing, and everyone saw this. When I was leaving that fellowship for the night, I had been told that it went an hour past its typical ending time due to my constant search for answers that night. What stuck with me when leaving, however, was when one of the hosts told me that they and the rest of the fellowship had been praying for me for quite a while by that point. Everyone's awareness of my curiosity and openness to the scriptures was even greater than I had realized. It was the next day that I was asked to go to church by two very close friends and important people in my life. This, of course, was a big deal and something I figured was a must in order to understand more. 
when arriving to the church building with a sign out front labeled Grace Church of Venner, I took note of how many families there were um, and how many people were smiling in their cute church clothes. <laughs> and when entering the building, I had been told that myself, along with my friends, were supposed to attend Sunday school for young adults and college students. I thought to myself, wow, I wonder how the Bible is going to be applied to such a specific age group. What could they possibly teach? When I walked in, I saw Pastor Mike with a whiteboard labeled, Managing Finances. <laughs> For a split second, I was convinced that there was no way I came to the right place. I thought that maybe I walked into the wrong building and was at some random microeconomics course. <laughs> Alas, I was in the right place, of course, no pun intended, and decided to go with the flow. To me, this was more than intriguing. Who knew that you could open up the Bible and apply it to the way you manage your finances? This was yet another revelation for me. I was now understanding how the Bible is the book of life and expresses the truths we need to understand a more Christ-like approach to living out our lives. The sermon that followed only encouraged me more, and I didn't realize I would be as excited by it as I was. I went back to school that day reading and digesting as much of the Bible as I could, and with every step I took, I thought about how God constantly and consistently affected my life through his merciful and loving self. After starting another big journal entry for my philosophy class the next night, I realized the prompt was about love, and my thoughts immediately went to God. <clears throat> God is love, I whispered, and what does that mean? All answers now pointed to Christ. I couldn't help but think about all the wrongdoings in my life and all the struggles and how God sent down his son to bear it on the cross for me. That is love. He gave me a chance to better understand how to be grateful and showed me how to appreciate all the wonderful blessings my life had and will continue to have. It was February 4th, 2019, and as the clock read 12.46 a.m., I said to myself, Christ lived and died for me. It was probably at some point during that day that my heart officially opened up to Christ. But it was in that moment where the realization of my new life truly hit me. To say it was overwhelming is an understatement. I started to think about my whole journey that led me to that very moment and how so many people prayed for me throughout the process of all the questions I was persistently asking. As tears streamed down my face, all I could do was fall to my knees in absolute awe and be more grateful than I ever have before. God seemed to evidently work so perfectly, and to have another sinful human like me come to him through his miraculous process was unreal, yet so real. In that moment, I felt I could perfectly resonate with Romans 11.33, even and especially with the tone of which it's written. It says, Oh, the depths of the riches of wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Paul wrote both of those sentences with exclamation marks. I was now looking at my former self, walking with Christ, thinking about how I have so much to thank God for and have so much to truly and properly look forward and seek purpose for. While knowing that I live a life with eternal value made me feel blessed beyond words, it also made complete sense and answered so many of the questions I had been desperately trying to figure out. 
It all pointed to God's infinite merciful love and perfect sovereign will. Looking back, all the questions, revelations, and relationships I had developing in my life were and are a product of God's infinite merciful love and perfect sovereign will. The next night, when I declared the news of my freshly opened heart to Christ to some of the important friends I had been talking so much with, I was greeted with overwhelming amounts of joy. Hugs, smiles, tears. Every fellow Christian in my life embraced me with the love that we're all mercifully given by God. Whether it was a hug in the form of a tackle, or a handshake followed by the greeting of brother. I felt so at home and realized how my life was now headed in the right direction along with many other who had witnessed so much of my process getting to the path of Christ. Funny how that all worked out, right? As soon as I became more curious about faith and the life of a Christian, I had suddenly been surrounded by so many to help guide me. It was all part of his wonderful plan. Now, I live a life looking forward to every single Sunday, seeing my church family and getting a big burly bear hug from Pastor Tim, I love the fellowship I have amongst other Christians and the deeper, meaningful conversations I am able to have with those who don't know Christ, especially the ones that resemble the conversations I had before I was saved by grace. I love the three or four weekly Bible studies I have with people I care so much about, and I'm looking forward to continuing a mindset of desiring Christ's likeness by devotedly studying God's Word. I love reading Proverbs and the wisdom books that always seem to enrich my soul. It is a blessing to have all the opportunities I've had to do this, and I will always search for more. But most importantly, through all that and whatever blessings I am also given by God, even and especially the hardships and trials and the mistakes that I will have to go through, I am determined through His grace to walk the rest of my life with His Son who died for me. And let me tell you, I look forward to when I get a chance to go back to that hill of my childhood Sit on the monkey bars, look off at that wise tree, and do it right. Repent for my sins, rejoice in my blessings, and praise God for another day with Him until I have no more days under the sun, and be with our Savior for the likes of eternity. Thank you so much for your time to listen to this testimony, but praise God that I am able to share it with you. so much for um, I know it wasn't hard right but it was worth it so out in the tent live stream overflow rooms thank you and Colleen and Sasha thank you for allowing God's grace to change us as a church and 
Praise God for that. Um, I just want you to be dismissed and just rejoice in the song of your fellowship together. So you may be dismissed, and God willing, we'll see you this evening at 6 o'clock. Lord bless you, and thank you again so much for coming.